0: Music, athletics, arts, and entertainment. The Desert Tiger Podcast with Colton Geschwagner.
1: What makes people decide to do something? What makes them decide to pick up a crochet needle or a guitar or to decide to practice wrestling or to pick up a tattoo needle or whatever passion or hobby that they have to be? What makes somebody decide... To pursue these things. This is why I decide to go out and ask people about their passions, about their dreams, and the journey that it took to end up getting there. Some people don't even know the reason why they end up doing these things. They just end up doing them because they have extra time on their hands and there's nothing better to do. And then next thing you know, Bam Scorch pow! you're on the cover of the Rolling Stone and you're being invited to tour Canada by the Kings of Leon, a band that influenced you from the start of your own band. Take for example my guest today, multiple Juno award winning, multiple Casby award winning, a band that has been certified both platinum and gold in Canada. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada's The Sheepdogs. The Sheepdogs were started in 2004 by founding members Ewan, Ryan, and Sam. And at the time, it was Sam's first experience playing drums and Ryan's first experience playing the bass. Sure, they had played music on different instruments before, but to start out something new and to make something out of it, it doesn't always happen. I mean, you can look in rock and roll's history and you can find bands like the Ramones, who just picked up their instruments and decided to start creating music and did. But a lot of the time it takes a lot of time and passion and drive. But 14 years later, thousands of album sales later, thousands of shows later, touring with the likes of the Black Keys, playing on shows like Bonnaroo and working with Jimmy Fallon. You never know where these decisions are going to take you. Sometimes a passion or a hobby can become a career, and that's an amazing, incredible thing. Why can't somebody like the Sheepdogs do exactly something like that? They kind of did in a way. Starting out as something that was just a way to pass time when there was nothing better to do, it became so much more, and you're going to hear about that story as I talk with the Sheepdogs drummer, Sam Corbett, about the history of the band, and we're going to talk about all these experiences, being on the cover of the Rolling Stone, winning Juno Awards, touring with John Fogarty. We're going to discuss all these things, all up into their new album, Changing Colors, which has seen a very nice change for the band, and you're going to hear that as I'm going to play two tracks for you during this show. As you know, we always do. Thank you for joining me here. This is episode 19 with Sam Corbett, drummer of Juno Award winning The Sheepdogs. I am your host and a parent, social speaker now, and MC and announcer, as I just found out today. I know, surprise, talking in front of a microphone can apparently become more than just a hobby. So, as you know, before we get into our interview with the Sheepdogs and how they got started and how they followed their passions to where they are right now to this new album, Changing Colors. We're gonna play you a song off of Changing Colors. And I hope you have a little bit of a gap to fill. Because the soaring guitars of There's a Hole Where My Heart Should Be might just fill that. Sheepdogs. How's it going, man? Oh, it's going pretty awesome, I must say. I mean, I got to talk to a Juno-winning artist this morning, so I'm very excited. How are you? I'm doing quite well. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. So, you are the drummer in the Sheepdogs, this is correct? That's Yeah, that's right. You got it. Alright, awesome. So how did you end up sort of how did the guys end up meeting? How did how did the Sheepdogs get its start? Um well I sort of knew Ryan and Ewan, Yuen,
2: so Ewan's lead singer, guitarist, um Ryan's yeah. bass player. I sort okay. of knew them uh, in high school a little bit through a mutual friend of ours and uh, like we would hang out at parties sometimes, but we hadn't started the band yet. And then sort of in a year or two after high school, we started thinking, we were all going to university, but we started thinking that we maybe, we didn't really know what we wanted to do. We weren't really getting a lot of satisfaction from going to school. Um, So actually what ended up happening is, I was kind of mulling the idea over of renting a drum kit, um, because I'd never played drums before.
3: Okay. And
2: so just kind of on a whim, I went and got one. And it turns out that that same day, basically, uh, Ryan got fired from his job at Blockbuster, so we huh. got the last <laughs> laugh there, right? <laughs> yeah, and uh, and Ewan actually uh, uh, got dumped by his sort of long-term girlfriend, oh, so wow. they <laughs> both had a lot of extra time on their hands. And I had this drum kit, so that very day they came over. Ryan borrowed my old bass guitar, and Ewan brought his new guitar, and we started the band that very day. That was. Uh, let me think. It was 2004. Okay. And, uh, been a band ever since.
3: Oh wow,
1: that's pretty amazing. So you started playing drums basically right around that day, then? Yeah,
2: I had so- uh, like I played other instruments growing up. Uh, you know, I took piano
1: lessons when I was a kid.
2: Uh, yeah. I played you know saxophone and band and stuff like that. I played a little bass guitar, but. I never really had a strong desire to play the drums until yeah. you know, kind of leading up to that time in the year. I was just listening to a lot of Led Zeppelin. Go figure, right? And, and basically, a lot of John Bonham. Man, loving loving John Bonham, and basically, started thinking like, God, like playing the drums would be just like the coolest thing. And so I was kind of like, desire was building up inside me. I uh, and finally went and got the kid and then we started the band. That's it's like you know we always joked it's like the only band we've really ever been in. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of funny the way it it played out, but it was definitely very, um, I don't know, meager beginnings or, I don't know. We were just kind of screwing around. Right. We didn't know what it was going to turn into.
1: Was that also like Ryan's first time touching the bass?
2: Yeah, more or less. Like he had played guitar before.
1: Yeah. uh, So it's sort of similar, but,
2: and you and, uh, wasn't super experienced at guitar. Like, I think he had taken like acoustic guitar in high school and uh, he had just bought that electric guitar maybe like six months before then. So we were Um, all pretty green.
1: Yeah, no Um, doubt.
2: But that was good that we were actually all learning our instruments at the same time. And, and, you know, if there had been two guys who were experienced and one guy who wasn't, then, I mean, the dynamic wouldn't quite have worked out, I don't think.
1: Yeah, no, it's you guys kind of were able to grow together, which... Definitely, kind of helps your dynamic as a group, I would feel.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we started off with, like, sort of very basic uh, stuff, like just trying to play, like, you know, White Stripes or Black Key songs or something like that. And, yeah. And then we got, you know, sort of more ambitious, trying to learn harder and harder material and, you know, adding more stuff, like... Ewan would sing right from the get go, but uh, you know, eventually we started adding the harmonies and stuff like that, and then, okay, uh, you know, we just tried to always expand our, our tastes, and then, you know, um, you know, try and try and learn more, and it, it just worked out that we were all kind of at the same level and grew together.
1: Huh, that is fantastic. So within two years, you guys were already ready to record your first EP, then. Like, that's yeah, pretty I don't crazy. know if we were
2: actually ready, but we did record. It anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we had, we we just spent like a lot of time, you know. Like we always joked, there there was like a month that we literally jammed every single day. Like I said, we didn't yeah. have a whole lot else going on in our lives, so we just like played in my parents' basements, you know, for about I think like nine months before we even played our first show. Oh wow! Which uh, you know ended up being like a, a battle of bands type of competition that we. We actually ended up winning our night, which is you know oh, we felt like it was nice. destiny at the time or something. Yeah, of but uh, <clears throat> yeah, and so like we, uh, you know, at that time we were playing like kind of a mix of covers and originals, and we had some originals that like some early ones that were pretty rough, and then we started to you know, you know, just write more and more songs. Ewan is a very like prolific songwriter, and he always had, has been, you know, ever since we started yeah. the band, he's always had lots of ideas to bring in and stuff. So, you know, we started with that EP and, but, you know, basically as soon as we were done recording it, we realized that we wanted to, that, you know, cause it takes a long time to record, especially when you're, you're pretty new at the whole process. So by the time yeah, we were recording and released yeah. that EP, we, we already had a bunch of new songs that we wanted to record and release. And that's kind of the way we've been for a lot of our careers. You know, we've always wanted to, um, Work on a lot of new material and 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 put out a lot of, as much new material as we possibly could.
1: Yeah, definitely. So you guys were known as the Breaks back then, right? That's right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember
1: how we got into that
2: name. I think we just thought it sounded cool. Uh, okay. But we you know we we ended up looking up and there was like ten different bands, different <laughs> other bands you know online with the name The Breaks, or there was a band called like Breaks 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 or something like that. So yeah, we so trying to kind tour of figured under that, that name to, would be... Yeah, we just figured it was, it was like, maybe a little too generic or something, so... Um, yeah, no, it's... We, we kind of mulled it over to tour, and, like...
3: Yeah, it
0: would have been difficult. We like kind of,
2: <laughs> yeah, and we had spent so much time trying to come up with that name that we were kind of exhausted with the whole idea, so we just basically picked the Sheepdogs on a, on a total whim. Huh. Like, it, there's not really any kind of deep significance behind it, although, yeah, it was you know... Just... It One of the most fit. frequent questions we get asked – well, yeah, actually, it's kind of before we had the beards and long hair and stuff, which – so it's like we almost kind of grew into our name somehow. Hmm. I was going to say, like, we, we get asked all the time, how do you, you guys get your name? And we don't really have a good story. We basically just picked it because we thought it, it would work. No real meaning behind it. But sometimes we make up answers, uh, you know. Just like, for we'll the hell it. of it. It's a, <laughs> Yeah, pretty much, just because we get, like, that's literally the question we get asked like, more than anything, mm-hmm. and uh, we feel like we've got to make up a good story since there isn't one.
1: <laughs> All right, so, but when you guys became the Sheepdogs, you guys had another guitarist join the group, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um,
3: so,
2: Leon is from uh, Prince Albert, so it's like an hour and a half north of uh, Saskatoon, and so yeah. we didn't really know him growing up, but we met him. Uh, just at a party, and he was—we were really into the Kings of Leon's first couple albums at that time, and he was also into those same records, and so just kind of hit it off, and uh, and then so we brought him into
1: the fold. Okay, vibe was right, sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so then you guys ended up like you guys—I was going to ask this earlier, I forgot to—you guys um, self-recorded your first EP, right? Uh, well, the first EP was uh,
2: with, like, um, sort of a friend of ours in town. Who's, okay. Uh, he's sort of more of like our parents' age, but, you know, he became our, a good friend of ours and stuff. So we recorded our first EP and our first couple albums with him. And then when it came to uh, Learn and Burn... We sort of, uh, we didn't really have very much money to pay for recording, and Ryan was um, sort of staying in this uh, friend's apartment, like this friend of ours, who had sort of turned his apartment into a little bit of a home studio. He sublet his place to Ryan while he was on the road. Okay. And so we kind of figured, like, let's just save some money, be able to take our time and to record uh, Learn and Burn. So uh, that was the first one that was sort of self-recorded, although, like, you know, the earlier ones, okay. it's felt like we were working with some kind of big name producer. He was just sort of a friend of ours who was a lot more experienced with studio stuff than we were at the time.
1: Yeah, so he kind of showed you the ropes, and then you guys just sort of went from there. Yeah,
2: exactly. Like we, yeah, we'd always like we'd take every kind of recording experience as a learning experience. So yeah, definitely. Uh, it's, you know, it's growing. We right? definitely learned a lot from him, and you know, some stuff we wanted to do to keep, and some stuff some ideas that we didn't want to keep, some stuff that we realized didn't work for us. But as a young band, it's hard to totally realize what you want to be and, and what is going to work for you. So,
3: uh,
1: yeah, It definitely you know, is. Experience cause you're, for sure. you're trying to figure out what you want to be while trying to break inside of your small market and break outside of it, and it's difficult.
2: Yeah, and like, you know, we... You know, sometimes you have a pretty strong feeling about what you want to do, but yeah, you know the type of music we were playing was certainly not like the most successful type of music. I guess there was sort of at that time in the mid two thousands there was a bit of like a kind of a rock revival thing, but it was a little Mm -hmm. bit more garagey, I guess, whereas we were a bit more, you know,
3: yeah, like classic rock revival, guitar solos.
0: yeah,
2: and I mean, it's—I mean, it still was not like it was the top of the charts or anything like that. So, I no, mean, we always as... felt that, yeah, like we yeah, always felt like the type moment. of stuff that we were doing was good, but we definitely, and people, you know, we would play these small shows when we were traveling and people who were there seemed to like it, but it just—it was hard for us to get any traction because it felt like it was the hip sound or anything like that at the time.
1: Yeah, definitely. So you guys in twenty eleven after releasing Learn and Burn ended up taking a trip to LA which you thought was gonna be your big moment.
2: Yeah, that was sort of like uh it was uh set up through Sask Music, so we got like a grant to basically go okay. down there and showcase like basically what it was is us and our our um buddy band, the Deep Dark Woods, went down. Oh, nice and I played uh ones. you know yeah, they're 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 great and they're really good friends of ours and stuff, and we're at the time as well. So we went down and we didn't exactly know what it was going to be like, but it was our first time in LA, and we, it ended up we sort of played like three songs to a, like a lunch crowd of, I guess it was supposedly like industry types. I think it was supposed to be a lot of people for like placements and stuff like that, like yeah. uh, as far as you know, TV and, and uh, maybe commercials and stuff. Okay. Uh, I mean, it ended up. I mean it was a good experience for us um, just, you know, Mm -hmm. as a learning experience, but absolutely nothing came out of it. Right. Right. Uh, It was, uh, so at the time it it was pretty discouraging, you know, we felt like leading up to that, like all we needed was to get in front of the right people and to play our Mm -hmm. music and that that would help our career. And then it sort of didn't really, you know, didn't really help at all. So, It it was discouraging because we felt like that was the final step we needed, but, you know, we we needed something
1: else. Yeah, oddly enough, though, you guys ended up meeting a manager out in Toronto. I'm not sure if he was your manager or not, but he ended up sort of leading to your own Dr. Hook moment.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Like We sort of met, um, we went over to a friend's house, this guy, Jeff Leek, who, runs like the Sirius XM radio Verge and he was always kind of an early supporter of us.
3: And uh,
2: I can't remember how we got in touch with him, but he just, he just liked our music. And so he invited us over for uh, like a barbecue one time. And there's this other guy there, this guy named Joel Carrier, who was our manager still. And he wasn't our manager then. So
3: he, this,
2: uh, our friend Jeff just basically set up this meeting to, um, You know, introduce us because Joel hadn't really, he wasn't super aware of us and we kind of had heard of him, but we weren't in touch with a lot of management or anything. We didn't have a lot of interest from much management at that time. So we just kind of hung out and it was like very casual, but it was the start of a relationship that, uh, you know, proved very fruitful for us because he was the one, he had been in contact with uh, Atlantic in the States and that was the label that was involved with the Rolling Stone contest that you're sort of referring to. Yeah, uh, like because the you know the, the prize was you got on the cover of the Rolling Stone.
3: Yeah, and then you obviously,
2: right? Uh, contract with I Atlantic, say. right? Yeah. So so he had these contacts with Atlantic, and they just sort of asked him, you know, do you have any bands? Like they were just kind of putting out feelers. You yeah, know, everywhere within the music industry. So he just they asked him, do you have any band that's unsigned that you think would be good for this project? And they didn't really. I think they were kind of vague to him with what it was exactly. And he was certainly, he didn't really tell us what it was. He just told us yeah. that he had submitted our name for this thing that he said, if it happens, it would be huge, but I, I can't really tell you what it is. And we're like, okay. okay, well, that sounds good, but, we <laughs> you know, obviously huh. it's very vague. Um, and then, so we found out a couple months later, that it was like, oh, the deal is it's going to be in this contest to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. And, you know, so we found out you know that we were going to be one of 16 bands which was very exciting obviously it was the biggest thing that had ever happened to us just to even be mentioned in Rolling Stone
3: and yeah, be no one of the
2: bands in the contest so initially we were just kind of happy to be there like mm-hmm. you know it was obviously the biggest thing for us at the time but then once we started once we got in the contest and we listened to the other bands we started thinking, and then, you know, we did this thing where we flew to New York, and you do these photos and videos and stuff like that, and you play live in front of these judges. Once we started doing that, we started thinking, like, I wonder if there's a chance that we could actually win this contest, because,
1: you know, we were sizing up the competition, and we felt like we were
2: as good as as any
1: of these bands. So Yeah, Definitely. And you have to be able to believe in your product if you're going to be competing in something like that, especially if it's leading to opportunities like playing on the Jimmy Fallon show and playing on festivals like Bonnaroo. Like, those were happening before you even won the contest, right? Yeah, those were, that was part of uh, like making it to the top two, right? So it kind of went from like 16 to eight. It was like
2: a March Madness type bracket, like 16 okay. to eight, four to two. Yeah. And so once we made the top two, uh, part of the, the deal was you got to play a set at Bonnaroo. I think we only played for about 25 minutes, but still, you know, that's still part of the prize. For us was just getting tickets to the festival, right? And, you know, we got yeah, to see, right. You know, like I can't remember I who was all playing so that year. Many uh, Black Keys, sure. um, who were a huge yeah, influence my morning jackets. Oh, for sure. Um, there was like a reunited Buffalo Springfield at uh, that year. There was, a, there was a bunch of stuff. I'm, I'm kind of getting confused in, in my mind with the other year we played at Bunner, but yeah, yeah, it was obviously a huge festival. We'd never been a part of anything close to that. And then the mm-hmm. other sort of prize for getting into the top two was that you got to play on Jimmy Fallon, but there was sort of a catch to that, which was that um, he did this thing where he would get his band to write a song about an audience member. I guess this was okay. a running bit of his at the time. It might, maybe it still is. Uh, but so we, the, the catch was that we, like they pulled a random audience member and we had to write a song about her in a, we had about 20 minutes to do it. And then we're going and playing on, it's not live, it's taped in the
1: afternoon,
3: but you only got one shot at
2: it,
1: right?
3: Yeah, definitely. So so
1: you don't want to mess up.
3: Yeah,
2: exactly. So we're playing and, uh, you know, whatever. And there's, we understand that there's probably going to be about a million people watching this later later that very night, right? And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm playing drums. I look over and I see, like, Questlove is, like, looking directly at me. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of funny. I don't know. No pressure now. Yeah. Definitely. (laughs) But, you know, we ended up winning that, um, you know, like, basically the audience voted as to which song they liked best and they liked ours. So, uh, you know, we felt pretty good about that and felt good about our chances of, of winning the final, as it were. Yeah. You know, and then we did so
1: that's fantastic so then when you finally did end up on the cover of the rolling stone how quickly did you cop that issue (laughs)
2: uh (laughs) i well i luckily i had my mom to buy about 35 copies for me um (laughs) (laughs) I, i didn't actually uh i guess the song goes that you're supposed to buy five copies for your mother but she bought like about 50 I don't think I actually bought a copy. I don't know. It was uh, it was very overwhelming at the time, and we were basically just, like, running around playing a bunch of shows and trying to, you know, strike while the iron was hot. And I, so, I mean, I can yeah. honestly say that I did not buy an issue for myself. But, I mean, we probably got some free ones, and I know my mom bought a bunch.
1: Well, and, as long as you uh, have you know. one around, that's what matters, right? Yeah, well, I don't think I have one. I'm, I don't know.
2: Going to sound like I'm not appreciative or something, but I don't think I have one in my house right now. But like I said, I well, know I'm my
1: sure mom you... has a bunch of her. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> but... your mom has a copy waiting for you somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So this actually ended up leading to um, some pretty good opportunities for you guys. You ended up signing with Atlantic. Like uh, your yeah. album ended up charting 14th on the Canadian charts, which is amazing. And ended yeah, up going uh,
2: well, so, <laughs> yeah, like that's something <laughs> I <laughs> think we feel pretty fortunate that, to have a a platinum selling album because I don't think that's happening again for us or or maybe any artist, right? Like obviously well, that's it, isn't in Canada, the years between now 80,000 well, yeah, records like album sales. <laughs> Yeah, I think they're going to have <laughs> to drop that down because you know, I think it's very difficult to sell those kind of numbers anymore in Canada or anywhere really because of Spotify and stuff like that so I, I mean that's definitely something we're we're very appreciative that we we did hit that number. But yeah, you're right. Like a bunch of opportunities popped up. Um, you know, like like I said, being on Atlantic was part of the contest, and and then the guy who ended up okay. writing our cover article um, was his name's Austin Skaggs. He's Boz Skaggs' son, actually. Um, what? He, so he's yeah. So that he's is like, cool. he's friends with uh, yeah <laughs> yeah definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh the, he's friends with like uh Kings of Leon and um Black Keys and stuff like that. So that led to a couple of cool opportunities uh, for us then because we actually he basically played our music for the Kings of Leon and they had an upcoming Canadian tour. Yeah. You know, an arena tour. And he said, You should think about having these guys open for you and they said sure because they liked our, our songs from that and
3: as I yeah, mentioned before, much... we had
2: been huge, huge fans of them. Um, you know when we first started, so that was a real honor for us. And obviously playing arenas as an opening band, but uh, that was a, that was a huge huge deal for us at the time. And then because he was friends with the Black Keys, he 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 was the one that sort of hooked us up with Pat Carney, who ended up producing our our next record, our self titled record.
1: Yeah, which is awesome. I mean, not only to be handpicked by a band that influenced you, but to be able to share the stage with them on stadiums, and then be able to record with another member of a band that also influenced you guys must have just been huge mm-hmm. for you. It was very surreal. Like it, it felt uh, it felt pretty crazy at the time. You know, we would also
2: another thing that uh, you know, like I mentioned, Austin Austin Skaggs would set up for us is he like they did this. Um, he put on a like a Petty fest in New York, so it's like a tribute to Tom Petty. Okay. Uh, where uh, they would just have a bunch of celebrities basically sing these Tom Petty songs with a backing band. But then we came in and just played a song. Uh, you know, we, I think we covered uh breakdown, but we, we wanted only full bands to actually play. But so, you know, we were hanging around backstage at this thing and there's all kinds of like, I don't know, like uh, Michael Sarah, and people from Saturday Night Live and uh, you know, like I said, Kings of Leon, members of the Strokes, you know, members of the Black Keys and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, it felt weird. It's like, wow, you know, we you know, were from Saskatoon and it, it was like, you know, six months before that, that we had had literally no success to speak of and nobody had heard of us. And now we're in this mm-hmm. hanging out in New York at this like celebrity tribute. It, it felt pretty crazy.
1: Yeah, and suddenly to be the only, like, full band to be playing that event, hanging out with all those people, like, that is a huge jump. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely.
2: And, uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was a pretty interesting experience. And, I mean, at the time, like I said, it just felt very surreal. Mm-hmm. But, and I wish I would uh, maybe while it was going on, I had a little bit better perspective and, and appreciated it a little bit more. But the other thing that was going on is that we were just, so incredibly busy because we realized you're trying trying to keep it going right? Yeah we realized that the contest was a great thing and you know it brought a lot of attention on us but we very quickly realized even before we had won that we couldn't rest on that and that we didn't want to be known as this contest winning band right? Because you know think of like how many American Idol winners have successful careers? Not very many. Not many at all. Much bigger spotlight. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we realized that we had, that's why we wanted to, you know, while it was going on, we're basically like doing stuff in New York during the week, like photo shoots for the contest or, you know, videos or recording songs for the contest. And then all weekend we're playing different festivals. You know, we'd play like three festival shows one in Victoria, one in Halifax, and one in, you know, Montreal or something like that. So we'd be jumping across the, you know, Canada playing shows mm-hmm. and then be busy during the week. So it's just a very hectic time and you know, because of that, maybe we didn't fully appreciate how how amazing it was. And you know, we didn't have the best perspective. But certainly looking back on it now, it uh seems pretty cool.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it I can understand how it would be hard to appreciate it during that moment when you're so busy trying to hit the iron while it's hot. It's...
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: So, how did Patrick Carney, um, did he help with the songwriting or anything at all? Like, did he help, like, with the growth of the band, working with him? Well, uh, sort of more,
2: like, arrangement type of stuff. Like, he, okay. like he didn't, uh, you know, Ewan always writes sort of, like, the melody, the lyrics, and uh, like, the chords and stuff like that. But sometimes he would have, you know, back to when we weren't working with a producer or anything. He would bring, Sometimes he would bring a song in and he'd have a very clear idea of what he wanted it sound like and the arrangement to be like, you know, he'd know what he wanted the drums to be. And that's fine. You know, I don't mind doing that, but other times he would have just a very rough idea. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we would kind of, sh- you know, sketch it out and shape it together. So mm. I think, I think for that album where we worked with Pat, like there was a lot of, you know, sort of like changing of arrangements and stuff like that to sort yeah. of uh, fit a certain mold. And, you know, that that's good in a lot of ways because we learned a lot of tricks as far as, you know, like he'd been working with, you know, Danger Mouse and stuff like that and had very successful yeah. records. So it was good to get that kind of input as to what, you know, sort of works for mainstream rock or what works for being on the radio and stuff like that. At the same mm-hmm. time, we felt maybe a little constricted because we really wanted to, uh, you know, we just like having weird elements to our music as well, right? Like we like guitar solos, we like lots of vocal harmonies and stuff like that, and we like there's a lot of melodies.
1: Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of melodies in it, and they flow really nicely.
2: Yeah, and so and we just like having a lot of different kind of
1: elements to our music, a lot of different influences. So you don't want to be
2: too um, you know, mm-hmm. samey in, in, in your songs and stuff like that. So, you know, we, like I, like I said with other recording experiences, we just took, you know, that as a learning experience and, and took stuff that we liked and kept it, and then other stuff that maybe we didn't like, you know, mm-hmm. tossed aside.
1: Hey, that's fair enough. The Desert Tiger Podcast.
0: A complicated man A diamond in your head
1: <laughs> Pomeranians eating their own waste. What are you going to write about next, Mick Foley? Oh, the song's done? Well, this is a little awkward, but I guess you guys caught me in the middle of listening to an audiobook on Audible. I was listening to Countdown to Lockdown by Mick Foley, not only a New York Times bestselling author, but also a. Fantastic storied wrestler who has a lot of amazing stories to tell, and you can hear those stories and as well as many other amazing books if you go to audible.com/dtp. You can get a free month trial of Audible and a free audiobook like Countdown to Lockdown or whatever else you may be into, whether you're in self-help, nonfiction science fiction fantasy whatever you're in audible.com has tons thousands on thousands of different audiobooks for you to enjoy so one more time that is www.audible.com for a one free month trial of audible and one free audiobook what is there to lose when it's all free Without further ado, we should probably get back to our interview.
0: The Desert Tiger Podcast.
1: Alright, before I get a little too far away from Learn and Burn, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, Junos you guys ended up winning and the Casbys you guys ended up winning for that album. Like, how was that for yeah. you guys' career? Well,
2: um, we always joke like...
1: Well, so when we
2: when we heard that we were nominated for Junos, we I don't know if we thought we had much of a good chance of winning them. Yeah, exactly. And at the same time, of the show, yeah, just given our past experience.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, so the show was I don't know say it was like it was the beginning of April of that year, and but we right. had an offer to go tour in Australia opening up for John Fogarty. which that was why during would the same time. <laughs> well, exactly like. And we actually, uh, he, I think Fogarty had worked on something with Pat Carney, so I think that's how we got that opportunity. Oh, wow. But, you know, we, I mean, we had never been to a Juno's before, and so we weren't sure if we were ever going to be nominated again. So, I mean, it was a little disappointing that we couldn't go, but at the same time, that tour in Australia was amazing, and we are very glad that we got that opportunity and that we took it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what ended up happening is we you know, I woke up at in the morning, and I found out that we had won the one that was presented on the Saturday night. And then we woke up the next morning, and we found that we had won both of ours that were presented on the Sunday night. So
3: it was just yeah. pretty
2: cool. We always yeah, joke you guys that
1: ended up because later on, taking.
2: when we were nominated for a couple of Junos for our next album, and we did go to the ceremony. Uh, we lost them all, so we we like to joke <laughs> that if we we're ever nominated for some again that we're not going to go because we only win if we if we don't go.
1: Well, hopefully Changing Colors gets you a couple nominations so you can accept a tour with somebody else and... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Take right. home we have to ra-
2: think of some excuse to not go.
1: Exactly. Just just and, too busy. Then we'll clean up. But yeah, you guys yeah, cleaned exactly. up Best New Group Single of the Year for I Don't Know, which has also been on a couple of commercials and a few things. And you all, guys also took home Rock Album of the Year in 2012. Like, that is... That's stellar.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the next time we were nominated in that category, we lost Rock Album of the Year to Rush or something like that. So well, <laughs> obviously, there's some pretty heavy hitters who've won that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, single I mean, of the year is to pretty... rush. Yeah,
2: single losing of the year is a pretty rush crazy. Is one not to... bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I think back on, it, I think single of the year is probably the craziest <laughs> one, just because. I don't know. You'd expect that to go to like something like Justin Bieber or no,
1: uh, The exactly. Weekend or
2: something like that. Mm-hmm. To you think that we
1: won one of those is pretty that. crazy. Yeah. And for a band from Saskatoon to take home single of the year, is that's huge. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, hmm.
1: You know, And then
2: later on we ended up winning one for um, video of the year, but we didn't have... You know, we, we weren't even in the video. It was just puppets in the video, so... I mean, I still have
1: it, but... Not, it doesn't feel... It doesn't of feel course. Quite as well. Of course, somehow, yeah. if you're going to win, somehow you're still not fully involved in it, right? Yeah, right,
2: exactly.
1: Following that key. And then you guys ended up getting gold on uh, your self-titled record, plus two gold singles.
2: Yeah, like I said, it was back before uh, Spotify completely uh cratered the ability to sell sell music and people buying music i'm just kidding a yeah. little bit but you know yeah it was it was pretty crazy like the for learn and burn to go um you know gold or platinum whatever i think yeah. i think it ended up going platinum like yeah, we made learn that and album Burns platinum uh that was the one we recorded ourselves and mm-hmm. um we we sort of like our I, our goal was to print a thousand copies and hopefully sell those ones. <laughs> like that was probably huh. that was probably our goal when we first started out because
3: you know yeah. if we could get
2: a second run of that of that record we probably would have been happy that like as our initial goal setting up. So for it to sell mm. eighty thousand, obviously pretty exciting.
1: Yeah, it kind of uh, takes your expectations and knocks them way way out of the park. yeah right exactly okay um in 2013 you guys had the opportunity given to you by CBC to be flown to Memphis to record a couple uh, Elvis Presley songs as well as a couple of your own songs what was that like for you guys being able to do that it was pretty exciting like
2: um you know obviously There's a lot of rich musical history in Memphis. Yeah. Uh, Sun Studios is, you know, like there's a photo in Sun Studios of the Million Dollar Quartet, right, which is uh, Elvis, Johnny Cash, um, Carl Perkins, and Jerry Lee Lewis. Mm -hmm. And like there's a photo of them standing around piano. We ended up kind of tongue-in-cheek recreating that photo. Uh, That's awesome. It was a really cool experience. You know, we... And one of the cool things about it is that they let us sort of do our thing with it. Like we did mm-hmm. uh I think we did three Elvis songs and one of them was like a pretty straight up version of like it's pretty similar to the Elvis version. Another one was yeah. was sort of different and the and the third one was very different, right?
1: And so you guys sort of so incorporated was, your sound and then you fully incorporated your sound into it sort of thing.
2: Yeah. It was also a nice challenge, too, because we're recording, you know, everything live off the floor, except for, the, well, maybe we did do the vocals live off the floor, too. Okay. I think we did, actually. So, huh. I mean, it was, it was just another challenge for us. and We ended up meeting um, the engineer for that session. It was this guy, Matt, Matt Ross Fang, who ended up We ended up using him for our next album, Future Nostalgia, okay. as, as the engineer and... for the whole album. So.
1: Yeah. So, for... Future Nostalgia. Uh, Leit Hansen en- actually ended up leaving, and you guys ended on taking on another member. So, how did the band sh- sound and writing process sort of shift through the member changes?
2: Uh, well, I mean, Rusty was a, is a very he was a very strong, like a uh, backup singer, and he was a really good multi instrumentalist. Like, um, you know. He's, he actually is very good playing any instrument. And so, you know, and he, he had his, he'd been in a lot of different bands. He was a little older than us. So he brought a lot of experience. He'd done a lot of recording as well. So, you know, he just brought a lot of different ideas to the table and, you know, he was a, a voice that we really respected and an opinion that we took, took, you know, his suggestions seriously, whether it was something, you know, for the drums or bass or a harmony or a songwriting thing, you know,
1: he was a yeah. good element
2: to add, for sure.
1: Okay. That's awesome. That's good that he could help. You guys also saw the change to Dynalone Records. How's working with those guys? Well, it is, it like Joel, I mentioned, is our manager. He runs Bedlam Management,
2: it was our management, and Dynalone Records, so it was his oh, company. Oh, okay. So nice. it was, um, you know, we like we are very familiar with the whole team and everything like that. With yeah. being on Atlantic, it was, uh, you know, obviously it was a pretty cool opportunity, but, you know, they don't have a lot of bands like us. It's sort of more, I think, urban. You know, historically yeah. they're, you know, obviously have some of the greatest bands of all time, like Led Zeppelin and Crosby, Silver and Nash, Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles
1: and stuff. But that's but, not uh, what they're concentrating on now. I don't think
2: so. I mean, most record labels are not concentrating on the type of music we play, so... That's no, understandable I mean, for sure
1: and i feel like dine alone is definitely a better fit for that since they definitely have carried a lot more of that style of music Hmm. well we just were you know they're obviously very familiar with our our style and our
2: sound and uh you know they you know it just seemed like a natural fit for us at the time
1: all right, so this um, around this time, you guys actually started to get in your songs played with some hockey. You guys, uh, for the IHHF World Championships in 2015, Feeling Good, was played for every single goal. Did you guys watch that at all? And, like, was it a little surreal? Uh,
2: you know, <sighs> not a whole lot. We're actually not the hugest hockey fans. Uh, you know, for a Canadian band, we probably... Uh, you know, maybe a bit of a—I uh, don't know. We, for whatever reason, we're not the hugest hockey fan, so I mean, maybe we, we definitely enough. caught some clips. And it's still great, obviously, to have it be used, and you know, that was something we were thinking when we were recording, feeling good that it would really, it would, you know, suit a sports uh, setting very well. We were very yeah. definitely aware of that, but you know, we're we're happy, we're super happy it got used, and it got used mm-hmm. like for um, it was like the the victory song for the blue jays one year too and you know mm-hmm. and then we, I we are i think it was used like for the
1: 2014 winter olympics as well or at least one of your songs was yeah
2: yeah probably maybe <laughs> i right.
1: know one of your I songs exactly was used remember. uh for the female hockey team's uh final wrap-up video i know they used one of your songs oh
2: yeah nice yeah
1: right on yeah so then, um, if you guys aren't very big hockey fans, you still ended up getting on the 125th Stanley Cup Tribute. What was being involved with that like?
0: Uh,
2: well, um, I don't know. It,
1: it was a cool opportunity. Like, we're we're pretty much
2: game to do just about anything, you know? So, yeah. So... Uh, it was cool it was just it was just a fairly regular show for what we ended up doing uh it wasn't super super different but we got to okay. see the stanley cup up close you know you're not allowed to touch it right <laughs> right but you know we we're like a couple feet away from it that was pretty cool
1: okay so let's get into now the new album that you guys come in have coming out here changing colors how has the Bound's sound yeah. and approach like, changed during that? Because you guys have definitely embraced a lot more instrumentation and a little bit more of a softer sound. Mm-hmm. So, part of that would be uh, we have a new guitarist now, it's a Jimmy Boskill. Okay. Um,
2: he's been, yeah, he was, you know, he, his, he's got a very interesting story. He was sort of like a uh, child prodigy guitar player, you know, he would been playing on playing and touring like playing on tv and playing huge shows and touring since he was basically like 11 12 or something like that okay um but so he's a, obviously a phenomenal guitar player and he's a great singer like he would sing leads in his band he's an awesome yeah. harmony singer as well but um he, so he kind of came in as a, as a replacement for us and he was just a great fit You know, right from the get go. One of the interesting things that he brings to the table, though, is he's an awesome uh, multi instrumentalist as far as like uh, any sort of country uh, instruments. Like, he's a great uh, pedal steel player, he's great at banjo, uh, fiddle, mandolin, he's a killer mandolin player. Uh, Mm. So, he was able to help us add those kind of textures to the album, uh, Mm. which, you know, definitely having the ability to to add those types of things. Like it definitely affected the sound of the album. It's a little bit, maybe a little bit more country, but that's,
1: you know, we've always loved country music, old country music, Whoa, old country um, music. And it's always and been, that's, that's what it reminds me of is like old, like bluesy country music before it got filled with pop. And I really enjoy that.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's great stuff. Like everybody loves that old country stuff. Um, mm. And, you know, we'd always had a little kind of a subtle, inf- you know, influence of that kind of music, but For sure. uh, to, be, to be able to have someone who's a real expert at playing that style, to have him on the record really,
1: really helped out. Definitely. I could definitely see how that would. Was there a specific reason why you guys decided to make that shift? Or is that just sort of how the band naturally progressed?
2: I think it felt natural. Um, you know, we always are trying to add different elements to our music. We don't want to put out the same songs over and over again, just, you know, in a different key or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think that's something we've always been trying to do. There's also a bit more of a Latin flavor to some of these songs, which again, has been like a subtle influence for us, but something we wanted to bring to the forefront. This is really great album that we like, um, uh, by Stephen Phils, It's called Manassas, and it has all these sort of different sections um, where one is like more Latin-influenced, one is more country-influenced, and one is a little bit more straight-ahead, one's more folk-influenced. Yeah, so I think we really admired something like that, like an album that's just basically able to tie in together all these different disparate influences mm. into one cohesive sound. I think that's something we'd always wanted well, to do. And you know, at the same time, there are still... Yeah, exactly. At the same time there are still some like pretty straight ahead rock songs,
1: you know, because we still like
2: classic rock music.
1: Um, oh, definitely. There
2: is we, still we felt like that we could blend classic. in all these different things.
1: Like yeah, there is still we like, felt like that classic you know, Crosby Stills Nash feel to you guys for sure.
2: For sure. Yeah. And that's something like we don't want to completely change and we're not gonna make like a jazz record or something like that with no rock influence, but you know, mm. it's just part of our, you know, say part of our evolution sounds a little pretentious, but I guess that's what it is.
1: Okay, and this actually saw the change back to you guys being in control of producing your own records again. Was there a reason you guys wanted to do that?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think that, um, like, I, like I said, uh, we we learned a lot from working with other producers, but yeah. I, I think that, and I think working with producers is good. It gives you like some ideas that you never would have thought about. I think that we have a pretty clear idea of what we want to sound like though. Like we, yeah. you know, we're not striving to, um, I don't know, to, to totally drastically change our sound. And, and I think we know kind of what we want to be. So I yeah. think that makes it easier for us to self-produce than maybe for okay. some bands who don't have a clear idea of what they want to release. Yeah. Um, it also just kind of, like when we recorded our self titled album with Pat Carney, like he only had two and a half weeks available in his schedule to do it. So we had to record yeah. both thing in two and a half weeks. So that can be, you know, obviously it's it's good to add, to add a little bit of um, pressure to a situation, you know, to make sure you, you know, or, or some kind of limits to it, I guess, to make sure you yeah forth your best effort but at the same time i think we felt like there was some stuff we would have rather you know redone or maybe added or maybe done added a couple of different songs later so mm-hmm. with being able to self-produce now like this for changing colors we re- recorded it in toronto which is where most the band lives mm-hmm. and um we recorded over the span of maybe six months or something like that where we'd go in for a couple weeks you know, take a week off or two weeks off and then go in for another week, take a month off. And so you're able to kind of sit back, you know, get a more of a sense of it as a whole. And then I think that gave us a good idea of what we needed to work on and maybe what the album was missing. And then we go in and work on that kind of stuff.
1: Awesome. That's awesome. So you guys have released a video for your first single off of that album. Mhm. And it actually starts with German vocal like a German <laughs> lady introducing it. So like it's actually going to ask you like you guys seem to have like a very decent like European following. Is that something that you like enjoy do you like you do you guys enjoy going over to Europe or
2: Uh we do. We actually don't have like the greatest following in in Europe. It's it's okay in some some countries and some markets, but yeah. we always I mean, we love going over there, but we don't. We're not nearly as successful as we are in Canada. That the reason why we had that um, German intro is because that the concept of that video is just based on old kind of 70s, 60s, and 70s TV performances. You can see, like there's a famous um, Led Zeppelin one, whether on Danish TV, mm-hmm. or there's like a, um, uh, excuse me, what band I'm thinking of? Uh, Joe Walsh's old band. Um, my name's skipping me right now but anyway they're performing on uh on uh oh james gang that's what it is they're performing yeah, on german tv and it has an intro and that's kind of where we got the idea for that video so we heard, okay gotta find someone who speaks german to give us a little intro
1: okay that's kind of cool because i remember watching a lot of like the uh uk shows from that because like i like to watch a lot of the old like thin lizzy videos and stuff like that oh for so. sure yeah I definitely there's an understand awesome uh, performance
2: too. That's the same type of thing where, just like kids, like sitting around, like cross-legged on the floor while they're just rocking.
3: Yes, that so hard I for forty five
2: minutes
1: Yeah, I love that. <laughs> just kids sitting there, like it's reading time. Yeah, and
2: they they look somehow they look <laughs> bored. Like if they realized they were watching one of the
1: greatest fans of all time, right? I mean,
2: and it would be one of the few times you could they'd have a chance to watch them. But you know, whatever.
1: No, for sure. It's it is like you're getting the opportunity to be on TV watching this amazing band and it's just like, Okay, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, like
2: Led Zeppelin only performed on TV like three times
1: or something like that, and
2: they're at one of them. I guess it was at the time of their first album, so they didn't know how big they'd be.
1: Okay, fair enough. All right, so yeah. we'll get into a couple other questions beside well, actually you guys have a tour coming up. How are you excited about that?
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah, we always, uh, like I said, we, Canada is still our strongest market. And we're, you know, very mm-hmm. appreciative of that. And so the Canadian tour is usually the highlight of any sort of album release cycle. That's uh, good. Know, play, play the most fun shows, the craziest shows, the, you know, the biggest shows and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we haven't been on a straight tour like that in quite a while. So, uh, It'll be exciting, you know, getting back into mm-hmm. the swing of things. That's We've good. We've been doing more sort of like one-off shows and uh, smaller runs. So to actually go out for, you know, a month, month and a half. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, uh, it's going to be fun.
1: No, it's definitely well. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys when you get to BC and joining in on the festivities. Yeah, where are you based of? Uh I'm in Kamloops.
3: Oh, cool. Right on.
1: Yeah. So, I'll uh, either... I think you guys are playing Kelowna for sure.
2: Yeah, Kelowna for sure. I was going to say that was probably going to be the closest one.
1: Yeah, I think so. So, I'm pretty sure I have plans to come out for that one.
2: Nice. That'll so be great.
1: Awesome. Yeah, so I'll be there to shake your hand in person.
2: Yeah, that sounds great, man. I'll have to awesome. will grab a beer or something.
1: All right. So, do you have any favorite stories from the road or the years of touring and recording? Um, I mean, a favorite to pick one favorite one. I don't know. Like
2: I've I've talked about some of the crazy stuff that's happened to us. You know, just meeting different celebs, touring with John Fogerty, and yeah, um, you know, uh, meeting all these crazy people backstage at Petty Fest. Okay, well, here's I guess here's another one. Like I just mentioned, uh, this awesome free video in mm-hmm. the seventies where they're you know it's, it's like kids are just sitting cross-legged on the floor and stuff. And, but anyway, so the singer of free Paul Rogers also saying it's a bad company and yeah and whatnot. Uh, sort of I think right after the contest, somewhere around that time, um, we got an opportunity to play a couple songs with him on stage. Like he was actually singing, we were his backup band. So we did oh, wow. three free songs. We did, like, I'll Be Creepin' and All Right Now, which is one of the all-time great rock songs, right? And yeah, so no doubt. With him on stage, um, you know, singing. And he still sounds, like, unbelievably good. Like, yeah. so good. So much power. His voice sounds amazing. He's obviously taking very good care of himself. And then another interesting thing about that event is, um, I can't remember exactly what it was. It was something in Toronto. Is that uh, Jimmy Boskell, who was our now our guitarist? He was working mm-hmm. backstage at that event as a tech. Huh. So he was there and he watched it, but we didn't know him at the time and we wouldn't actually meet him for another
1: five years. Wow. So it's kind of cool how that worked out. That's, that's very cool how that worked out. Yeah. Do you have any must have item for when you are on the road?
2: Uh. Um. I don't know about like a certain must have item. I think uh, one that's sort of a must for me for this upcoming tour is just maybe to like take a little bit better care of myself. (laughs) We've definitely had some tours, especially when we first started where, you know, we'd be pretty wild. Um, Mm -hmm. Getting a little older now. Yeah. And like I said, when I was talking about in 2011, we were super busy going from town to town and didn't have enough time to reflect. I think part of that was just, you know, we're not getting enough sleep and uh you know maybe partying too hard and which is you know there's nothing wrong with partying or anything but
1: no but there's a time and a place second. right
2: <sighs> yeah exactly um sorry i was just getting another call
1: <laughs> no worries <laughs> but
2: yeah um so i think that and you know we're so we're getting a little older now and i think we want to you know, I think we realize that to be at our best for all these shows, we need to just maybe dial it back slightly.
1: Yeah, definitely. I know, the
2: most rock and roll thing to say in the world, but it's true. And then when you see, like I, when I was, you know, I was just talking about Paul Rogers, if he had partied as hard as, you know, uh, Jim Morrison his whole life, you know, he wouldn't sound good or he'd be dead, right? So if,
3: no, I think definitely. we want to
2: have long careers in the music industry. And to do that, um, you know, we
1: just... I
2: think we realize we have to just, you know, take care of ourselves out there.
1: Yeah, definitely. You definitely have to. All right, before I ask you one last question, where can people find the Sheepdogs and you yourself?
2: Uh, As far as online? Yeah. Uh, You know, uh, so Sheepdogs.com, you know, we're on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook. uh, You know, me personally, I don't have a huge online presence, but... (laughs)
3: That's uh,
2: I guess my Twitter handle is fake Sam Corbett or at fake Sam Corbett, but I only posted I think one thing in in uh, in 2016. I think in my New Year's <laughs> resolution is to maybe get a little bit more active on social media because it does it does help. I, you know, I don't know if it helps. Uh, I think probably helps grow the fan base a little bit, but also cool. you know we want to. I think part of the great thing about this new online world as far as music is you can interact with your fans a little bit more. And so I'd like to get a little bit better at that in the new year.
1: It makes them feel so much more involved with what you're doing and it makes them care so much more, I feel, sometimes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, and I, I think as a band, we do a pretty good job of that and that's something we're always thinking about. But
1: me personally, I could definitely do a better job. Okay, well, that's good. All right, one last question for you, sir.
3: Who mm-hmm.
1: were your high school idols and influences? Uh, well, high school,
2: I would say, you know, the two biggest ones for me were The Beatles and Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, high school is when I started, uh, you know, finding some of my parents' old records and stuff and, and putting them yeah. on and buying a couple records of my own. And, you know, it was... You know, I was getting into a lot of different types of, types of music at the time, and and back in high school I was a little bit more into what's uh, you know I guess modern music than I am today. Now I'm definitely yeah. more focused yeah. on retro stuff, but I don't know. It always comes back to the big three for me are, like I said, Led Zeppelin. Although I got into them a little bit more after high school, and then Beatles mm-hmm. and and Stevie Wonder. Those are the big three for me. They were when I was. 19 When we started the band, and they still are today. So, something's things okay. kind to of change, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's some things stay the same, and sometimes that's for the better. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and... that, that,
2: it's timeless music for a reason. It's, uh, you know,
1: it's really obviously great music, but
2: I think it just hits certain themes that are always going to be true for people and, and uh, always going to resonate with people. And I guess if I had to tie that up, that's something that we would, of course, strive for is, you know, we, you know, we idolize this old retro music and we want to make music like that, but we don't want to be seen as some kind of like, you know, tribute band or, uh, you know, or something like that, like, um, like a band that's just covering old music. We want to make music that is, that people up today are still relating to and
3: mm-hmm. hopefully people it in the future
2: is. will relate to too
1: and is maybe just as timeless as the music of that time. Yeah. And hopefully. hopefully it I mean will that's be. a
2: pretty lofty goal and <laughs> Hey, <laughs> be, hopefully it will be. be uh, you know as good as the Beatles or Stevie Wonder, but I think uh, this is something you and always says is that you know what we try to do is you know we see our idols, we aim for that, fall somewhere short and then that's that's
1: that's what you are, right? Hey man. And I think that's As what long as you the Beatles as long as you too, shoot for the stars they, you're still in space yeah, right, and that's exactly. pretty cool. <laughs> yeah.
2: Like the Beatles, they wanted to be, you know, Elvis and, and
1: Ray Charles and
2: Buddy Holly and stuff like that. Exactly. And up being the Beatles, which is pretty good, but, you know, I, you know we'll, we'll just try exactly. and, and see what happens.
1: <laughs> exactly. See, see what becomes the Sheepdogs. All right. Thank yeah. you so much for taking an hour out of your day to sh- share some time with me. Honestly, thank you so much.
2: No problem, man. I really appreciate it. We don't get to do uh, super long form interviews all that often. So it's uh, it's fun to revisit some of those, those old memories for sure.
1: Hey, it's. I love to actually get into those memories and get into people's passions. So thank you for sharing it with me. Hey, no problem, man. Appreciate right. it. Yeah, appreciate it as well. All right. You guys know what I'm going to do right now, right? We're gonna send out a huge thank you to Sam Corbett of the Sheepdogs for taking time out of his busy day and schedule to sit down and talk with us for an hour and share with us the story of the Sheepdogs. I am extremely thankful that he was willing to do that and I hope that you guys enjoyed the interview just as much as I did. If you want to find out more about the Sheepdogs, you can do so by going to any of the places that he listed. That being the Sheepdog's website, their Facebook, they're on Twitter, they're on Instagram. You can find them all over the place. You can also see their music videos for their new song, I've Got a Hole in My Heart, or the song you heard in the middle of the show, Downtown, which came off of their album Future Nostalgia. Those music videos are all on YouTube, and you should definitely go check them out. Changing Colors drops on February 2nd, 2018, and it has 17 tracks, and if you go and pre-order it right now in iTunes, you can get it for less than $9 Canadian, which is pretty fantastic. When is the last time you bought 17 tracks for less than $8? Or, if you want to pick up any of their past albums, like Future Nostalgia, which featured the song Downtown that you heard in the middle of the show, you can also cop that on iTunes or by going to their website and getting it their store tab. I also want to take a quick moment to thank Dave Stelling. Dave, you are a class act, and thank you for setting this interview up. I am extremely thankful for everything you have done for me and I am extremely thankful that you are willing to trust me with this. So thank you and I hope I did a good enough job. I also have to take a moment to thank you guys, the listeners of the Desert Tiger Podcast, because you already know, without you, I wouldn't have the opportunity to do this. I wouldn't have the opportunity to do a lot of the things that the Desert Tiger Podcast has allowed me to do and I'm so thankful for that. In 2018, we had over 2,500 listens in over 10 different countries, in over 20 different states, and in almost every single province and territory in Canada. So, thank you guys so much for spreading the word about the Desert Tiger podcast, for listening, for taking the time to subscribe, rate, and review, whether it's on iTunes, whether it's on Google Play, whether it's on Spotify. That's right, you can now listen to the Desert Tiger Podcast on Spotify. Just gotta look up Spotify, or you can look up any of the individual artists, and you can find their episodes. How awesome is that? The Desert Tiger Podcast is now so much easier to subscribe and listen to on the go. So if you have Spotify, go ahead and do yourself a favor and hit follow now. All right, next week we are going to have a very special guest. We are going to be having one of the members of Daggermouth joining us. Daggermouth is a band from Vancouver, British Columbia, who struck really big in the early 2000s and decided to take a break. But they're coming back hard and they're coming back fast, heavy, and loud. And they're coming at you. So I hope you guys are just as excited as I am for next week's interview with one of the members of Daggermouth. All Alright, before we end the show, as always, you know we have to let you off with a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of a quote, a little bit of motivation to get you revved up and ready for your weekend, for what you've got ahead. And you know we're going to give that to you right now, baby. Success is not built on success. It's built on failure. It's built on frustration. Sometimes it's built on catastrophe. That's a quote from Sumner Redstone. Take the Sheepdogs, for example. They traveled to LA and spent a ton of money thinking that was going to be their big break. And in reality, at the same time, something else was happening that they didn't think was going to be quite as big for them. Take me, for example. I've been homeless. I've slept in my truck. Sometimes I choose to do that to make episodes of the Desert Tiger Podcast now. But I'm not doing it because I have to. I've failed. But I didn't have to stay there. Don't let the things that you can't control hold you down. Rise above them and learn from them. And have yourselves a fantastic week and a fantastic weekend. And until next week, a big whoop whoop.
0: The Desert Tiger Podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. iTunes, Google Play Music, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook,
3: Twitter, Instagram. Thanks for listening.